Guys, is this your first ever podcast? It is. All right. Nice. nice. Starting at the top. <laughs> um, all right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to more of a comment than a question. My name is Rachel Hartman, and with me today is my friend and co-host, Paul Connor. How are you doing, Paul? Hey, Rachel. Uh, I'm fine. It's been a it's been a really rough week, but I'm fine. I don't, yeah, I don't even want to go into it. It's just academia life, being a parent, being a husband. Yeah. The, it's, a the, it's a lot. Does sound like a lot. Um, do you have a good Thanksgiving? Yeah, it was okay. Uh, all the foreigners in my lab came over. And so we had a foreigners giving. Nice. At my place. And um, uh, <laughs> my lab mate, Dongwon, who might be listening to this. And if so, hey, Dongwon. His, uh, his daughter came over. She's two years old and she's incredibly cute. She, uh, she's learning to talk, but she only speaks Thai and Korean. So she just kept walking around, like saying things to everybody. And her parents had to <laughs> keep translating what she was saying. She didn't really, she didn't really get that, you know, we, do, we don't speak Thai or Korean. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was adorable. And yeah, we're still going on the leftovers. So that's, I think we understood the assignment, as they say. <laughs> Um, it was pretty good. Uh, is we didn't talk about politics at all, which was disappointing. We usually get into big, which is good. No, it's like I look forward to it all year to like really get into it with Luke's uh family, but they no one brought up politics this year, so um. But yeah, it was good. Um, listened to a bunch of podcasts on the way there and on the way back. It was a total driving time of 36 hours. So what? I'm all caught up. Um, what, yeah. Any, any recommendations? Um, there's probably all stuff that you listen to anyway. But yeah. um, I mean, what, really, what other podcasts do people need? If you're listening to this, you're sorted. <laughs> exactly. Um, it, yeah, more of a comment did come up on my Spotify wrapped as, oh, nice. uh, <laughs> one of my top podcasts of the year. So I was, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, we can, I think we can, uh, introduce our guest today. Yes. So, um, we have Dave Porter, who is an air force veteran and professor in exile. Dave served in the Air Force for 30 years, uh, and then instead of retiring, he joined Beria College as academic vice president back in 2001, and then he returned to the classroom as a tenured professor of psychology from 2006 to 2018 when he got fired for running a survey uh, as part of a class assignment. So we will hear a lot about that today. Um, Welcome to the pod, Dave. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, great yeah. to have you with us. So just a bit of backstory for our listeners. We, um, Rachel and I are both in a Facebook group, uh, Heterodox Psychology, I think it's called. And we were just sort of promoting the podcast, just saying, hey, you guys might be interested. You might enjoy this podcast. You know, the, the themes we talk about are similar to some of the things discussed in this group. Um, and we also just ask if anybody has ideas for guests that we should have on. Um, and yeah, Dave contacted me and just suggested Hey, my story is kind of interesting. I, I mean, I'd never heard of of Dave or what had happened at Ber- how do you pronounce it? Berea, 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 Berea. Yet, um, but yeah, you sent a few. You sent through a few links, and yeah, I I do think it's a really interesting story uh, and something that our listeners will be interested in 
for sure. So yeah, great to have you on. Um, so what happened? (laughs) It's, uh, okay. So start, let's go back to the very start. Let's talk a bit about you. So your background prior to coming to Berea, maybe. Okay. I'll, I'll try and encapsulate this as quickly as I can. Actually, I was born at Berea. Uh, my father was a student there and uh, graduated from Berea in 1952. I was three years old. He went to law school. He became an FBI agent, and we moved all over the United States. Uh, most of my junior high on, though, was in Southern California. Uh, I was selected to go to the Air Force Academy, and I attended the Air Force Academy from 19. 19- 67 to 71. Uh, Immediately after uh, graduating, I'd done pretty well academically at at the academy. I went to UCLA and uh, earned a master's degree in uh, industrial relations and labor law. Uh, Following that, I went to helicopter training and uh, spent a year in uh, Texas, Alabama, and uh, finally Utah, uh, learning to fly the HH-53 Super Jolly Green Giant. Uh, I had orders to go to Nakhon Phnom, Thailand, and uh, a week before I was supposed to appear, uh, my orders got changed and I went to Hawaii. Uh, I stayed there for seven years <laughs> flying helico- helicopters and first rescue and then systems command. I also, uh, during that time, became an equal opportunity and treatment officer and race relations instructor. Uh, I had always had kind of liberal leanings, which made me uh, somewhat different from a lot of other people in in the military. Uh, But I'd always been dedicated to the notion of uh, diversity and uh, inclusion throughout my career. Uh, I did well in Hawaii. uh, we won the Dedalian Award for the best aircraft maintenance in the Air Force. Yes, Paul. Yeah, I just I have a quick question. Um, in the so this is the seventies. You're in Hawaii. Yes, uh, and you're as the you said an equal opportunity officer and treatment officer. Yeah, it was the the Air Force answer to uh, how do we ensure that the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Title VII, which presents the uh, uh, legislation on uh, discrimination, either quid pro quo or hostile environment, uh, would be enforced. And and in fact, one of the first assignments I had was uh, to uh, handle a case where an individual, uh, an African-American who had been assigned to an elite paramedical jumper group. And these were the guys who were scuba divers and uh, skydivers and medics and gunners and, uh, you know, had all these incredible skills. Uh, The first African-American to join them was in our unit in Hawaii. The, uh, what emerged or developed is that their way of initiating and bringing uh, this young man into the group uh, was by telling jokes about his ethnicity. And you, you know the kind of jokes I'm, I'm talking about. And uh, 
initially he responded very positively uh, and he would tell honky jokes in, in return and everything was fine for the first three or four months until he failed his first check ride. And then it became the hostile environment and he filed a complaint through the base and, uh, and I was assigned to go figure out what had happened and what needed to be done. You know, it, it sounds absolutely bizarre now that any group of adults would think that that was a, an appropriate kind of initiation. But at the time, and these were all absolute war heroes, people with silver stars who had saved other, other lives and were incredibly uh, distinguished who could have ended their careers because of their involvement in, in these things. And uh, we called everybody together. Uh, we explained the situation. We to told them there was going to be you know, no retaliation. And uh, basically a week later, uh, there was a report. Several people got letters of counseling and non-judicial punishment. Unfortunately, the, the African-American had to be reassigned because of the nature of the, uh, the, the activities that they had, where you check each other's parachute, you living uh, sometimes 100 feet or more underwater and doing very dangerous things where you absolutely have to depend on each other. Uh, he opted out and he, he stayed in the Air Force, but he went to another assignment. That's... That was my, you know, my first introduction to uh, equal opportunity and treatment in Title VII and the notion of a hostile environment. And yeah, yeah. it was intense. And there were a lot of people that said, well, they were just kidding. There was no intent. But intention really doesn't matter. If you, mm. you, know, you have a responsibility, especially leaders and supervisors, to ensure that everybody can contribute and do their best work. Uh, and in this case, clearly that wasn't happening. And uh, so there were uh, mild non-judicial punishments, and that was the way that that case was resolved. I also volunteered to be a race relations instructor. And you'd think, gee, Hawaii would be a great place for race relations, but there are uh, intense prejudices and stereotypes. And a lot of people in the military would come to Hawaii and because of their discomfort with other cultures would absolutely not leave the base. So here they were in paradise and they they were imprisoned in, in a sense that they, they couldn't go off. And so there was a lot to be done to help educate and move people forward towards uh, you know, an inclusive and integrated military. And I think in the long run, uh, you know, it, it worked out well. That was, yeah, that was really helpful. Quite, quite a tangent, I guess, for what we're going to talk about, but relevant in a lot of ways. And I, I really appreciate it because I just was having a hard time picturing in my mind what that role would entail back then in, in, the, in the armed forces. But yeah, I re that was very helpful. Okay, so uh, moving on, where were we up to in your life story? Well, I, I was in Hawaii, my unit, I became a maintenance officer also, a chief functional check flight pilot. We had done really well. I was selected to go back to the Air Force Academy and teach. I did that for uh, two years and I did well in, in teaching courses in uh, leadership and general psychology. 
uh, in particular, those those first two years. And after two years, uh, I was selected for a scholarship to go to Oxford for three years, paid for by by the Air Force. 1983, I went to Oxford University. I studied with Donald Broadbent. I don't know if you are familiar with uh, Donald. He's known in, in Europe as the father of cognitive psychology. Uh, just an amazing man, absolutely brilliant. Hundreds of books. He, uh, his book in Perception and Communication was uh, an absolute standard for the beginning of kind of cognitive psychology. Uh, and he went on to uh, do a lot of other studies. Later, he looked at uh, uh, implicit and explicit knowledge. And my own dissertation was uh, a functional examination of intermediate cognitive processes. After that, I returned to the academy in 1986 and stayed there until 2001. Uh, in 1995, I was uh, selected to become permanent professor and head of the Department of Behavioral Science and Leadership at the academy. Uh, in 2001, uh, I had done a lot of work with the American Association of Higher Education, AAHE, which is no longer around. Uh, but one of their vice presidents said, uh, you know, there's a, a small college in Kentucky that uh, I think you'd be just perfect for. Uh, they have a, uh, you know, a unique mission and uh, they have a president who's uh, Wearing the faculty out is uh, just pretty autocratic. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. What is it? And to my surprise, it was Berea College where I was born. Hmm. So uh, I was recommended by a, a number of folks and came back and interviewed and uh, was, uh, you know, came on as the provost. And uh, through that next four and a half years or so, uh, we the president and I bumped heads a lot, but I think we did a lot of amazing and really very positive things. Uh, the graduation rate at Berea, at a little bit about Berea, Berea College offers a full tuition scholarship to every student that it selects. The only way you can apply for admission to Berea, though, is to be Pell Grant eligible, which means if you're from a family of four, your family has to make less than about $45,000 a, a year. Uh, so there's a cap rather than a, a, a floor on who comes. Uh, they're just amazing students who are highly motivated, very cooperative, uh, and very enthusiastic. But we were only graduating about 45%. Uh, first thing we needed to do was go through and assess and look at all the things that were reasons people were leaving and to see if we couldn't do better. Uh, within two years, we had increased it to 60% graduation. Sorry, small point of clarification. So does that mean, so every student that comes there is offered this scholarship? Yes. But every student is essentially is low SES? Yes. Wow. How do, I, I, didn't realize I was just wondering, like, how do they pay for that? Like, where, do the, where does the tuition money come from? Uh, they have a $1.5 billion endowment. Uh, the the interest of that pays about 75% of the cost of education. They do an annual fundraising, which raises another 12.5%. And Pell and state grants together make the other, make up the other 12.5%. So 
So, and every student works for at least 10 hours a week while they're there. So it's a, a work college model. It's, it's amazing. It uh, works well. Uh, it was, you know, what brought me to Berea. It was just tremendously exciting. Yeah, fascinating model. So, but you said um, graduation rate was 45% when you got there. Uh, you improved that, right? I beg your pardon? The graduation rate improved after. Yeah, it went up to 60%. And actually, it, it, Berea College is 150 years old. It had only been above 60% for three times in its history. Once during Vietnam, uh, you know, when people needed to stay in school or go to Vietnam and twice after uh, World War II when GIs came back and were using the GI Bill. So in that four years, there was just a whole lot of success. More students were graduating. The system had changed in a way to sustain that higher graduation rate. Uh, students were achieving and accomplishing more. And uh, we, were, we were a more effective organization. Mm. But the president and I disagreed <laughs> on a lot of things, and he decided it was time for me to uh, to go on a sabbatical and step down. And I could, since I'd been given tenure, I could return to the classroom if I wanted, but uh, I was no longer going to be his academic vice president. And, and I accepted that, you know, that was, uh, that was okay with me. And honestly, my first love has always been the classroom. And so, uh, you know, this was the, the briar patch that I was happy to find myself in. Yeah, so you returned to the classroom in what year, sir? Uh, actually, one of the president's pet peeves is uh, he had agreed that I could teach a class all the time I was provost, and I loved doing that. I taught him at night, but he was very frustrated when he needed to talk to me if I was in class. Uh, but I returned to the classroom full-time in 2006. 2006. Uh, of psychology, we had, I think, five people. Uh, and it, it was a, you know, a, a very solid, good department, uh, kind of as a liberal arts, small uh, department teaching uh, psychology. Uh, one of the nice things about Berea is, although the students don't have the economic advantages, they've always excelled in terms of getting into and going to graduate school. I think uh, nationally, they're in maybe the 92nd percentile uh, in the percentage of students that go on to uh, complete terminal degrees. Mm. What's well, interesting that there's that like division between sort of like stark inequality between the students who uh, are like in such a high academic standing that they're able to go on to go to grad school versus the ones who like need to drop out. Um, like, how does that happen within the same institution? I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, to some extent, if if you the more selective you are, uh, the better the, the better the performance and the measures are for the students who, who survive. What I'm most proud of is we increase graduation rate and, you know, the school it has about 1,600 students. So going from uh, 45% to 60% uh, was really about 90 students a year who were graduating who wouldn't have graduated previously. I have a question. So I, 
just um, the SGA stand. What does that stand for? SGA is a Student Government Association. Okay. So I want to read this because I think okay. you know, it sort of speaks to your track record as a professor in the classroom. So this is the the Student Government Association voted to award you the Outstanding, Outstanding Service Award in 2017-2018. And as we'll get to, other other um, the SGA advisors, the faculty advisors, um, didn't let them give you this award, but, you know, we'll get to that. But these students seem to really love you. Uh, this this is, I'm reading from a student's email because one of the advisors has said, no, you, you're not allowed to give this award to Dave Porter. And the student has responded, this is just part of what they wrote. The reason why we chose to nominate Professor Porter is because of the, of the excellence in service to students he has exhibited. His service to students towered over the other candidates. I ask you, when was the last time a professor brought, bought groceries for students because they do not make enough money? When was the last time a professor provided housing free of charge for multiple students because they did not make enough money? When was the last time a professor got a student a full ride to Cambridge? When was the last time a professor actively helped students publish papers outside of class? So it certainly seems like, at least in the eyes of this student, um, you are a fantastic professor um, in, in your classroom and went sort of above and beyond the call of duty uh, in service to your students. That sort of really comes through um, in talking to you, I think. Um, but we should fast forward a bit to to get to the um, the, the issues that culminated in your your termination. So, it all would you say it all kind of started with this uh, the Title IX um, allegations against uh, your friend Warren Messer? Yeah, the the. Uh... I think that would be fair. The the fact that, uh, you know, we as a department had lost uh, three members and uh, what were left were three more or less old white guys. And uh, we realized that uh, we needed uh, some diversity and inclusion. We went out and uh, conducted searches over the next three years uh, to bring in people who were not like us, who we expected would have a diverse viewpoint and diverse approach, but were very new psychology and were very dedicated to students and, and teaching. And uh, we were able to hire three of these individuals. And uh, as we kind of mentioned earlier, we uh, we may have been the the authors of our own demise in, in doing so. Uh, I think it would be fair to say that the department chair, well, as I told you, uh, people sometimes would call him Kramer-esque uh, in terms of his uh, erratic and kind of impulsiveness, uh, but tremendously experienced and knowledgeable in psychology, all sorts of, uh, of stories that students just found fascinating and uh, and very supportive, very understanding of students. Just a, a good guy uh, in terms of promoting the program. On the other hand, uh, he was, I guess it'd be fair to say he, he wasn't and wouldn't consider himself to be woke. Uh, he was not really a conservative and in a lot of ways, very, very liberal and very progressive. Uh, and uh, promoted 
those causes, uh, but wasn't by, by any measure uh, a political extremist. And some of the things, uh, some of the things, the tropes that were coming out about white privilege, for example, uh, if you're from uh, a rural uh, setting in poverty, as uh, as he was, it's it's hard to recognize white privilege sometimes, and so he was less willing to simply accept the prevailing uh, narrative that was uh, being put forward by the uh, the most progressive individuals, and would sometimes scoff at it or criticize it, uh, uh, and uh, you know this made him a target of. Uh, of, well, of three women in the department uh, who filed a grievance. And this may be where the, the, the real problems came in, because as somebody who had experience both in the Air Force, I'd probably handled a, 12, a dozen or so grievances. And the first thing when I came to Berea, uh, there was uh, you know, just a horrific incident and actually, it's in the, uh, the survey. It's the the Shetland yeah. incident. Actually, occurred in two thousand and one, and the president, because he had been somewhat involved, asked me as the provost to be the decider uh, in the case, and so it worked through that. So I had some idea of how Title Nine, what Title Nine required, and how a, a uh, an investigation and a process should work. Uh, it didn't work that way at all. Uh, Basically, there was uh, a very superficial uh, kind of investigation. And uh, really, the decision seemed to have been made early. And uh, the, the final conclusion was that he was to be removed as department chair and uh, banished to the basement. Uh, They've been, office when you say that you mean it literally yeah literally they came to the office they took out everything and moved him to a basement office they did convert what had been a uh, classroom and storage room into uh, what seemed a pretty pleasant office but the only other residents in the basement of the building were the uh, those in the herpetarium uh, 60 snakes that uh, down there. So it was Wayne and the snakes and it left in the basement of the building. And uh, we should, that seemed incredibly harsh. Mm. We should, um, the few incidents that uh, they had found that supported his hostile environment. And in his case, there was clearly no intention. Uh, The idea of punishment was just, just wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, um, so it was Wayne Messer who was at the chair of the department, but is, uh, as you say, like Kramer, like so a bit, uh, you, you would say maybe, um, and he was even described in the hearing as oblivious, right? This is the part of the decision. So like, right. he, he was described as aggressively oblivious, aggressively oblivious. Uh, impulsive. And, and all of those are, are not great things to have in a, in a supervisor, on the other hand, they're not things that you should be punished for, especially after you've been diagnosed. And he was diagnosed maybe a month later uh, with adult ADHD. 
Mm. Uh, and gave me permission to include that in the survey. That was the one uh, diagnosis that uh, that was included in the survey that some people you know, said they objected that I had revealed confidential information. Yeah. But I had his permission to include that. Well, yeah, we'll definitely get to the survey. But I wanted to spend a bit more time sort of unpacking these allegations against uh, Wayne Messer. So um, the there was a few different allegations. So one was um, discrimination in hiring, which was not found to be supported by any evidence, is my understanding. Right. And another and was... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, right. In fact, the discrimination was that he had discriminated against women in hiring, uh, despite the fact that the, the tally sheet showed that his first six highest rated people were all women. Right. Yeah. Uh, the person who made the charge uh, had also made the statement that the last thing our department needed was any more old white guys. And uh, her ratings showed that uh, maybe the first dozen or so uh, all women uh, or people of color, there were no old white guys included. Mm. Uh, you know, the evidence showed not only was he not discriminating, but the person who made the charge had discriminated. Mm. So the discrimination doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any any meat to the bones of of that claim. But the, the thing that he was uh, ostensibly ruled to be guilty of is creating a hostile work environment. And I find this just a very interesting concept. Um, so I want to read some of the, some of the things um, that he was uh, found, found to have done. So over a four-year period of surreptitious, uh, okay, after a four-year period, he used the words um, militant lesbianism in anger and frustration twice attempted to discuss Chrissy Hines' NPR interview in which she suggested that getting drunk and showing up to a biker party in her underwear contributed to her gang rape 20 years earlier. And this one I'm curious about, discussing a Jewish American princess joke immediately before a department meeting two years ago. Um, Rachel, you might have to cover I'm your triggered. for this one. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the picture here, I don't... Um, what 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 was the Jewish American princess joke, Dave? I mean, you don't you don't have to tell us. I'm just curious. I really, <laughs> yeah. Knowing that you're taping this, if if you don't like it, you can drop it. Uh, but it was before the meeting of six of us sitting together, and actually there were only five of us there at, at the time, uh, and we were in the room before things had started. Wayne had come in from class, or no, he had been doing some work in the library on the history of psychology. Um, and he said, here's a riddle. And what I want to know, is it offensive because it uh, discriminates based on religion or because it discriminates based on sex? How can you tell if a Jewish American princess is having an orgasm? And he said, and the answer is she drops her nail file. And <laughs> what? <laughs> it's offensive because it's just not funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, immediately one of the junior members of the faculty slammed her hand down on the table and said, 
that is just absolutely offensive and inappropriate in every way. Yeah. And, in every, okay. and he kind of said, well, yeah, I, I think so. I'm sorry. And then went on. But yeah. a Kramer characteristic. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the least happen the, often. The at least at charitable interpretation of this is that he just wanted to tell the joke to sort of be provocative and upset people. And, uh, and uh, I mean, was anybody there Jewish? I don't think so. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, the least, least charitable is, yeah, he, he's, he's trying to offend. He's trying to say something rude about Jewish American women. And the, the, the ruse is I, I want to discuss why this joke is offensive. Like I'm acknowledging that it's offensive, but I just want to say it's like when people think, yeah, like um, professors will say the N word ostensibly in the context of discussing uh, its offensiveness or discussing like it is a racial slur, but they really just want to say the N word. So that's why they do it. So like that would be the least charitable interpretation there. I mean, the Chrissy Hine thing, I, I just, I, I don't see that as out of bounds. Like if we want to give some background on that, I don't yeah. know. If, um, so basically it was uh, an interview with her on NPR where she was talking about um, being gang raped and um, how, I guess like I, I didn't listen to it. So this is based off of um, what I've read about the case, but basically like that she, uh was talking about like going into somewhere with just like wearing her underwear and kind of like maybe it was her fault uh is that more or less what was going on there i think that was the basic story and and those are the kinds of things that uh, if you have open conversation and discussion in a even a general psychology class come up and mm. Uh, you know, and Wayne was particularly interested in the backlash to that of, of came from, and he suspected that the two junior members of the faculty might be able to fill him in. And this is actually one of the cases that was contained in the, the survey. Uh, and in both cases, he, he talked to each of them individually for maybe a matter of, uh, you know, two minutes and could tell that they were uncomfortable and didn't want to discuss it and kind of said, I, I can see this is making you uncomfortable. We, you know, we can talk about it later or, or let, let me know if you, you have any ideas and, and then departed. And that was the extent of what had happened. Uh, they said, neither of them had said this made me uncomfortable. Mm. Um, but in light of everything else, it was one of the charges that he was found to be that was found to have created a hostile environment, and it's based kind of on a notion of subjective sufficiency. Mm -hmm. If if you say or do something, and somebody says I'm upset, uh, or I'm offended, or I feel threatened, or you're promoting rape culture by it, then that. That is all the evidence that some people need to say, well, then you're guilty of creating a hostile environment. Uh, and the results of the survey are that 85% of the people who read that scenario said, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, that's 
really not a hostile environment and it should be supported or protected by academic freedom. We should be able to talk about things that are broadcast on national public radio. So I want to just ask a question here about um, tying back to like the the case that you told us about um, back when you were in the Air Force uh, with the the black guy who is you know the only one in the unit and how I think like your words were that you know intentions don't matter in that case like maybe they didn't intend to um, be harassing him or making him you know feel unsafe or whatever but that that's what their actions resulted in and and so that's a bad thing um but it seems like in this case you are you're sort of saying the opposite that intentions do matter and that um your you know his intentions were not bad and therefore it's not a bad thing so I'm, i was just wondering sort of what your stance is on that and how you reconcile those views. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a big difference in that uh, the case long ago and far away in, in Hawaii uh, was not an academic setting. Uh, it was kind of uh, a naive and ignorant approach that I'm convinced many of the people who participated didn't see that anything they were doing was wrong. There's a big difference in finding that you have a hostile environment and how you choose to resolve it. I would support in both cases that I can see how this promotes a hostile environment. Punishment was appropriate, I think, in the case in Hawaii, because you had people in positions of leadership and authority you know, who other people may have to trust when they go into battle, who may give their life for it. And if you're in a that kind of a supervisory position, uh, whether by act or inference, you can't have any any bias. And the danger of telling jokes to make somebody feel at home is just blatantly uh, ignorant and irresponsible and that behavior falls below the standard of what you would expect of a non-commissioned officer. So that's why they were punished. In the case of discussing NPR, I think uh, it really was innocent and inadvertent. I think it did create a hostile environment, though. I, I wouldn't disagree with that. And I can see how it promotes rape culture. The response shouldn't be to punish somebody for it, though, but to sit down and have a conversation and come to an understanding and agreement of how we can discuss that. And that would be particularly important for somebody if it comes up in class. How do we talk about it in a way that identifies the message that Chrissy Hind had to convey or wanted to convey that Sometimes your own personal actions contribute to the outcomes that that you observe. And it's important to be aware of that, that that's a life lesson. On the other hand, it's also important not to blame the victim, not to identify, uh, you know, people who have been victimized by, in, in this case, absolute rape and sexual assault 
that that they're responsible for it and implying or inferring that the people who did the crime, who the criminals, were not responsible. That's where I think, uh, you know, the people who deserve to be punished are the people uh, who committed the crimes, not the people who are trying to find answers and understand it and discuss it. That's what the heart of, of higher education is, is we have conversations and try to come to common understandings and recognize a diversity of viewpoints. The most valuable asset we have in the classroom uh, and in the conversations we have is a diversity of perspective and a diversity of viewpoint. Uh, when we shut down the ability to express those views, we really undermine the quality of higher education. One of the things the survey found uh, was there was an item on self-censorship that had been included in a survey that John Villasenor in 2017 had included in a national survey that said, uh, basically, I, I withhold expressing my views because of uh, you know, my fear of, of backlash and feedback from either other faculty and students. And he had found that in his sample of 1,500 university students, 50% agreed with that. At Berea College, it was 80% agreed with that. Uh, when that's going on and the, the conversations that took place in the classroom as we prepared the survey uh, really were very critical of some other faculty and some things of their own classmates uh, who were cutting off the opportunity for people to voice opinions that were different from the prevailing view. Uh, and that's a threat to higher education, I think. Did, did that answer your question, Rachel? Um, yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I think I still have some, I guess, disagreement about like the differences between the two cases. And, um, I, but I think like, I agree generally that, um, punishment is maybe not the best, um, the best way to go, at least not initially. Um, I think just like maybe in the case of, uh, back in the air force, like, I don't know if, I guess it, there's also just like different environments, but like, I don't know if punishing them is the right solution either, as opposed to, you know, having a conversation about what's appropriate ways of uh, treating your fellow soldiers or whatever. Um, but Paul, did you have something you wanted to? Yeah, I guess, I mean, Dave, you mentioned that, you know, you, you can't, you know, you can't make race jokes if you are, uh, somebody's supervisor or you're in a position where you have to pack their parachute or something like that. And I don't know, I think even in the academic context, I guess, hmm, I think it, there's, there's possibly a valid distinction um, in terms of academia being a different environment where like we should be discussing ideas. Everybody should feel free to say what they think about things and explore different sides of arguments and things like this. Um, but I mean, if he was head of the department, you could, you could argue that he has sort of similar position of authority and power over, um, younger junior department members 
maybe. Uh, and that makes it a bit more similar to the um, army case. What I, what I really am interested in is this concept of a hostile work environment. And, you know, it, I, I think you're, I think you're right, Dave, when you say that like the, it's, it's kind of automatically proven by somebody saying that they subjectively experience it. Like it, it almost feels often in situations like this, that there really is no threshold of uh, evidence somebody needs to provide as long as they feel strongly enough that they're, they're in a hostile work environment. And that like, and you give a perfect example of, of the army where, you know, we, we definitely do want to avoid uh like hostile work environments are definitely a real thing, even if they are subjective and we should definitely avoid them. And we probably should have some systems in place to, I don't know, punish people or mediate these disputes and just improve things. So people don't, don't feel like they're in a hostile work environment. At the same time, there's this horrifying, just and ambiguity about it all and just it's all just so subjective and gray and like as somebody who wants to be in academia uh but also wants to be able to say what i think about things and say controversial things and say potentially upsetting things it's just so terrifying that the, the minute you say something and somebody's offended they can claim and truthfully claim really that you've created a hostile work environment if they subjectively feel like if, if somebody's subjective response is all we are uh, sort of going by uh, and all, all they need to do is establish that, yeah, you said something that they find offensive because there's no court that's going to decide what statements are offensive and aren't offensive, right? Like this is not a scientific concept. Like it's, it's ultimately hinges on subjective response. So like the idea that, yeah, you say the wrong thing, somebody gets upset, all of a sudden you've created a hostile work environment, all of a sudden you can be fired, you can be demoted, you can have everything taken away from you is really scary. Uh, and I think creates a hostile, <laughs> a hostile <laughs> environment for people oh like my myself. I, no, it's just so... Now, there, there is some language in the civil rights legislation that talks about something being objectively offensive, yeah. which itself profoundly oxymoronic, right. as if it's objective, offense is subjective, you know, and so yeah. it's hard to find things that are objectively offensive. Would that just be based the on the problem is the introduction of punishment? It's one thing if I say something wrong, you can react and say, well, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Mm. How, do, how can you think that? Or here's a counter example. And then you put me on the spot and I have to defend it. That's completely in keeping with good conversation in higher education. But when you say, I'm going to take your office away and send you down to live with the snakes, you know, that's not part of the fair game. Uh, I think punishment, there, I was, uh, as I indicated, I was the 
head of the Department of Behavioral Science and Leadership at the Air Force Academy. We taught uh, a couple courses in leadership. And one of the main topics, or one of the most important topics, was the paradox of punishment. Punishment is incredibly complicated to do well uh, and not to have the collateral damage to the relationship, to morale, to the organization. Uh, and yet it's the first choice of the people who are the least capable. Uh, we ought to not have punishment at all. Uh, in these issues. We ought to resolve them as adults with conversation and argument and bringing up different points. The idea of subjective sufficiency is addressed in another one of the survey items. Uh, and I don't know if you recall the one about uh, evolution and in teaching my course in uh, behavioral science, which showed the similarities and differences in anthropology, sociology, and psychology, one of the things that they have in common is an acceptance of the notions of evolution, uh, that things are the way they are because of adaptive significance. They've, you know, at some point, they've helped us survive and reproduce. And that fundamental idea can be, is manifest in all of the behavioral sciences. Well, there are some fundamentalists who say, well, wait a minute, my religion says that, uh, you know, evolution is a bunch of bunk. And, you know, here's a website of, uh, from the Bible, and uh, this is what's really true. Um, and, you know, if I insist, no, but if you want to understand behavioral science, You've got to buy into this notion of adaptive significance and evolution because without it, uh, not much else makes sense. It's like trying to teach English without grammar. If you don't have evolution, uh, the whole study of human behavior becomes very problematic. Well, these, in, in this case, it was two young women, were very offended uh, that I wouldn't accept and say, well, it could be one or it could be the other. No, it is evolution and basically the idea of adaptive significance as an explanation for behavior. If you buy into subjective sufficiency, they were as pissed as anybody <laughs> and they were offended by the position that I took academically. They didn't file a grievance. In fact, you know, all they did was was give me low ratings at the end of the semester. And, and you know, that was their their kind of form of letting me know that they they still had had power. But, uh, you know, we need to be able to resolve things. And the truth is that some people have beliefs that will make other beliefs and evidence seem to be uh, threatening and offensive. And we need to be able to talk about those things and get over them. Introducing the option of punishment uh, and the alternative of punishment, you end up punishing the things you can't dispute or argue against. Uh, and it, it really is a very weak and counterproductive response. And in the original Title IX case, uh, my fundamental belief based on, you know, 40 years of experience in looking at uh, hostile environments and how to prevent them is that punishing somebody for inadvertently creating one uh, was a very bad, it was unfair. Uh, it was unfair and counterproductive and uh, led to
truly the demise of the department. Well, we, we might we might come back to the the Wayne Messer case, but we should move on to your because you were, you were much more severely punished, let's be honest, than than Wayne Messer. So you, I mean, obviously had lingering feelings of um, unsatisfaction, dissatisfaction with the way Wayne's Title IX case was handled, um, and that led to you doing this survey which was ultimately what led to uh, them firing you, the university firing you. So talk us through that. Like what was the thought process? Um, what were you, what were you dissatisfied by? What, what were you hoping to accomplish with the survey? Um, what was kind of your, your goal uh, in, in um, developing it and, and publishing it? And um, what were the kind of main questions that you were, trying to get at or theories you were trying to I, I I don't agree and I don't think it's accurate to say that the survey was simply uh, in reaction to Wayne's case um, one of the courses that I've taught regularly is a laboratory course in industrial organizational psychology uh, and we've used data in, in undergraduate terms, relatively large sets of data, hundreds of, of data points uh, to create models that raise questions that can lead to improving the system. Uh, in fact, one of, the, one of the projects we had done earlier looked at how do you predict retention in uh, undergraduate students and first-year students. Uh, and found that grades were very important uh, and the, the thing of kind of grade momentum predicted who was going to be successful and who was going to be retained and for Berea college students unlike many other first-year students SAT and GPA uh, and uh, income level together predict less than five percent of the variance in who's going to be retained you know, the, the, the things in a standard model that would predict just don't predict at, at Berea. So what are the things that do? And it's basically the grades in their general studies courses and the direction those grades are taking. And also whether or not they have a syllabus. It turns out that for the, uh, you know, 90% of students who were in courses that had a syllabus on file, their average GPA uh for the following semester was 3.0. For the 10%, actually it was 15%, 60 students were in general studies courses where there was no syllabus. And their average GPA a semester later was 2.3. So a huge difference in impact on whether or not there was a syllabus. I don't think a syllabus is all that important, but what a syllabus tells you is, what, is how committed the instructor is and how organized and how willing they are. So that was one that we'd looked at the labor department. And so uh, IO psychology is applied psychology. You don't really go to the level of experimentation, but you try and identify what are the variables that are important, how might they be measured, and what's the relationships among them. And that's the, the lesson that I wanted to communicate uh, with this course, when I started to talk about the tensions 
between 1964 Civil Rights Act, and there's a you know a large portion of the chapter in the in the textbook we were using about that act and about hostile environments, and say, well, how does this match up with academic freedom? Do they support each other? Do do are they contrary to each other? Uh, what are your experiences? What kind of questions do you have? And basically, uh, it was very integral to the course I was teaching. And the fact that we were going to do a large project, collect a lot of data, and then use multiple regression and path analysis to organize those results and address questions of what the system is doing and how it's working uh, was something that was very much a part of uh, the class that I was teaching. And that's where the survey came from. One of the videos I show early and is on my website is a Daniel Dennett uh, uh, talk about uh, dangerous ideas or dangerous memes. And he says, uh, you know, if you have a friend that dies of cancer, you can get angry at cancer and you can get angry all you want. And it's not going to make any difference. But what a scientist is obligated to do is take the tools that they have and use them to discover evidence that can make the situation better. And to me, creating a survey that would collect the data and collect the evidence was the best way we had to make the situation better. Because within the department, no, but none of the women and men had met together in the same room for over a year uh, after the, the grievance had happened. The, the department was just shattered and you know nobody was speaking. It was kind of like an episode of Mean Girls, uh, the kind of childish things that were going on. There was no, you know, no sign of progress that I saw in the way that they had, uh, you know, come to a conclusion. Uh, they were, the administration was notorious for their lack of transparency, uh, that uh, they didn't even tell people what the particular outcomes were, what the particular offenses are. And that's really terrorism. If if you threaten to punish people and don't tell them what they can be punished for and don't share that information, then they don't do anything that's even close or might be, uh, might be uh, considered to be offensive. And that has a, a tremendously oppressive effect on education itself. Uh, but the survey was rooted very squarely in the course that uh, that I was teaching. So I understand like wanting to get uh, students' perspectives, and I know there were other respondents who weren't students, um, some alumni, some faculty. But I like, did you sincerely believe that whatever the results of your survey were going to be, that that would change anything it, like it's not clear to me sort of how you would expect um either the women in the in your the department the women faculty like would you expect them to be like oh well i guess if the survey says that it's not a that it it is academic freedom and not a hostile work environment then therefore i guess i was wrong and i mean you know like what like what's the uh, sort of tangible best case scenario outcome that that you could have uh, imagined Okay, I, I would imagine that uh, the use of evidence and the use of argument in conversation 
might help kind of turn the direction we were going to one that made it easier for people to disagree and for us to appreciate those disagreements and see that there really are multiple sides to the story. And the fact that, you know, 80% of our students are, uh, you know, self-censoring and not speaking up in class. You know, people complain all the time, faculty, about, well, it's it's so hard to have class discussions. You know, they, they just, well, every system is perfectly designed to yield the results you observe. We create the system. We create the game. And then we blame other people for playing it. Uh, what we need is evidence. We need conversation. We need openness. We need transparency. And all of those things were things that... Uh, it was my hope that the survey would promote, and it didn't. <laughs> you know, so thing, things really turned sour and went bad. And, uh, you know, my students in reaction after uh, the posting on Facebook saying that the survey was uh, simple retaliation and all of the cases had happened uh, in the department, which was patently untrue. Uh, you know, the, the students were being spat, spat on. Uh, they were being called out in their other classes uh, for, for how they had done this. They were being jostled at the, at the crosswalks. Uh, it was a terrible outcome. The, the dean had uh, told me uh, that uh, he wanted to see me immediately or wanted to set up a meeting with me right away. And I said, fine, you know, just tell me the time and I'll be there. He never got back with me. He said he's getting complaints. And I said, please send them to me. I will answer every complaint you get. Uh, he never sent a complaint. He said, uh, you know, there are some of these items that, that need to be removed. I said, please send me the items that you consider to be offensive and I'll take a look at them and see what I can do. He never sent those items. Um, and so I felt on the one hand uh, really abandoned by the administration. Uh, that they were not going to take the high road and work through this and have a conversation. Uh, they didn't want the information that uh, might be critical or contrary to uh, the choices they had made in, in the previous Title IX uh, case to get out. They didn't want people to see them. They, they wanted the survey to, to disappear, and uh, they wanted uh, a complete apology from me. We should um, maybe clarify for the listeners the the uh, shape of this survey. So um, I have a copy of it here. Um, it was titled "Academic Freedom and Hostile Environments: Attitudes and Opinions," um, or at least this that's what this document. Um, so it opened. The following survey contains questions about your opinions and attitudes. It addresses issues containing to programs uh, and policies of Maria College as well as industrial organization psychology. Um, so basically, the bulk of the survey presents scenarios, right, um, and asks people to give their opinion. So I'll give a few examples. Um, number one, a private college invites a very controversial speaker to an on-campus event. The speaker is known for making offensive and hurtful statements. A student group opposed to the speaker disrupts the speech by loudly and repeatedly shouting so that the audience cannot hear the speaker. Do you agree or disagree that the student group's actions are acceptable? and 73% disagree. I assume that means they chose 
one of strongly disagree, strongly disagree, or slightly disagree? Yes. Yeah. Two, a student group opposed to the speaker forces cancellation of the event by physically blocking the speaker's access to the event venue. Do you agree or disagree that the students' groups are acceptable? So a couple, yeah, a couple of things about um, academic freedom, freedom of speech there. Uh, and you can, you know, I have images in my mind of the real world events that are sort of being hinted at it, at these. I mean, certainly some are more specific. I mean, which which ones do you think are the ones that um, most upset people that they most, because I mean, one, one allegation made against you, Dave, is that you um, sort of gave away people's personal medical information at some point in this survey. Where, where theoretically did that occur? Do you know? Uh, and yeah, I have to say that was never addressed or divulged to me directly, but one of the grievance uh, had cancer and had been treated for cancer. And her behavior uh, had been pretty erratic afterwards. The scenario I wrote was about uh, an African-American male who had prostate cancer and after the treatment, uh, basically filed a grievance against his female department chair. Uh, one of the things, another course that I teach regularly is a lab course in uh, cognitive psychology. Uh, and cognitive psychology, as I'm sure you know, is, is really about two things. It's about attention and memory. Uh, how do we take information in and how do we how do we organize and store that information? Uh, anxiety has profound effects on the information we take in. The more anxious you are, the more narrow uh, not only your span, but your depth of, of vision is. You take in more information from a smaller area and you, you miss out a lot of contextual information. Uh, depression has a profound effect on, on memory, on how we organize and what we recall uh, when we recreate the incidents that we experienced. So what I was asking with that question, based on how you do an investigation, is it appropriate? Uh, I can't remember if it's appropriate or necessary, but should the investigator ask about uh, the physical medical history of the person making the charge. And I, I continue to believe that's a legitimate question to ask. I think there are some that would argue that talking about post-chemo cognitive impairments uh, implied that one of these grievance had been diagnosed with them. I have never <laughs> received information that would indicate that. I did observe behavior that to me looked like it was reflecting some a fair amount of anxiety and depression. Uh, but I'm not a clinical or a counseling psychologist. Uh, it just seemed strange. And so when we go back to this standard of subjective sufficiency, I think it's particularly important that we understand, uh, you know, that the person making the grievance may not be telling us 
something that another reasonable person who experienced the same thing would have would have provided the same account. And, and that's just a fundamental of how to do an investigation. I, yeah, so I'm looking at item 43. And this is, you know, this is straight from the Title IX case, right? Sorry, in an interview on National Public Radio, Chrissy Hine, a former rock star, suggested that getting drunk and showing up at a biker party in her underwear contributed to a gang rape 20 years earlier. So then, then the question goes on. A male department chair sought to find out what a junior female faculty thought about this issue please express your relative agreement that the department chair violated the college policy by creating a hostile environment by introducing and attempting to discuss the Chrissy Hind interview with a junior female colleague. 85% disagree. Uh, so that's um, pretty overwhelming consensus there that um, this shouldn't really be considered just in itself creating a hostile environment. Then 44, please express your relative agreement that the department chair's efforts to discuss the MPI interview and public relations reaction to it were protected by academic freedom. 77% agree. Now, I, you knew this was going to upset, really upset people. You definitely knew this was going to upset people because there's been this Title IX case. This, this very thing, this exact thing was one of the things Wayne Messer was found guilty of. The, um, the grievant, uh, is still there in the department. Now there's this survey asking the community at large to weigh in on essentially where the validity of, of her, her grievance, which like I'm really sympathetic to wanting to collect that data. Like, because it, you know, I think there's no way you would ever really convince that grievant, um, that maybe that wasn't a valid complaint and maybe that was protected by academic freedom. Like some people, um, there's just, they're too emotionally attached to a position to ever be persuaded. It is nonetheless really useful information if you can show, well, 85% of our community does not think that creates a hostile worker environment and 77% does think that it's protected by academic freedom. This is relevant to the department's policies going forward. So I am like, I listen to any episode of the podcast and almost always what I'm trying to do is like <laughs> figure out what are the rules here? Like where, where are the lines drawn? Like what, what is okay and, and not okay. We need clarity about these things. Sorry, Rachel. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. I just wanted to also uh, talk about another question on here, which was question uh, 37 and 38 about, um, which was also from the Title IX case about using the phrase militant lesbianism. Um, in this case, 70% of the respondents agreed that it does create a hostile environment and 76% disagreed that it was protected by academic freedom. And so just, I just wanted to like add that into this discussion of like, what are the rules and where do you draw the line? Because the same respondents are saying very different things. Mm. Um, and it's not completely clear uh, how they're, I mean, I think I can, I can point to differences between the two. Um, but throughout the survey, that was something that struck me as I was reading the results was there were a lot of inconsistencies. Um, it's not just between these two things. And so mm. I think a lot of it just comes from what people find offensive personally. And, you know, but that's not a really good way of uh, drawing lines. And 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. The respondents were basically saying, it seems to me, yeah, I I find the phrase militant lesbianism offensive. I don't find it offensive to bring up this Chrissy Hind interview. Therefore, one should be protected by academic freedom and the other shouldn't. And it, again, we just get back to this ambiguity and this gray area of like, yeah. yeah I, mean, I, think, I think it might be related to like, it was a NPR interview. And so that like gives it some sort of weight and like credence of like being a, a legitimate thing to discuss. Cause you know, they're discussing it on national public radio. Um but and like militant lesbianism just sounds like like a, a slur, like you're just like saying something to offend someone as opposed to having uh, real content to it. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it does seem somewhat arbitrary. And also like looking at all the rest of the results, like it isn't so so clear in a lot of the other cases. Um, and but and yeah, that, and that was the point, honestly. You know, the if we're talking about a standard of what is a hostile environment and what is not a hostile environment, one might expect a well-educated sample or population to be able to reliably distinguish between the two. We would expect that the average scores as we went from case to case might be we might have a bimodal distribution that uh, scores that clearly were not hostile environments would be uh, receive averages between uh, one and two and a half, and ones that clearly were were would be between uh, four and a half and and six, and so you'd have a bimodal distribution, and to me that would be a situation where you might be able to warrant punishment. Uh, You know, basically things where people know what the rules are and can make a clear distinction. But if you look across the the 20 scenarios, and one of the criticisms that some people had is that you should never use real events. Well, if you don't want something that's ecologically valid, uh, you know, if you make up things about unicorns and leprechauns <laughs> carrying on, that doesn't tell you anything about the, the real situation. Using real events, though, you get some measure of where the community is, where people in the community are. And what I found is that uh, the scores between two and a half and four and a half, that middle slightly agree to slightly disagree, accounted for about 75% of all the responses. So all of these situations were in some kind of muddy middle where people disagreed with one another. That's the last place you would want to have punishment for people who view things one way or the other. Uh, there were relatively few cases that fell out as not being hostile or clearly being hostile. And on the other hand, there were few cases that fell out as clearly being protected by academic freedom or not protected by academic freedom. Uh, and basically, academic freedom doesn't have much power if you can't depend on it, if you can't rely on it. If, if people are going to disagree, 
and the administration gets to decide uh, whether it applies here or not. Uh, you know, public universities have an obligation to protect the First Amendment. Private universities don't have that obligation directly, but when they issue a faculty manual or otherwise promise that you're going to have academic freedom, and, and almost all of them do, there, there are a few exceptions, but almost all of them promise academic freedom, then they have a contractual obligation to live up to that, uh, that academic freedom. And, and that's the, the basis of the lawsuit that, that we have against the college, is that uh, you know my academic freedom and actually the academic freedom of the students was uh, negated by the administrative action because after the survey was out, uh, I think within about two days, I was suspended. I was removed from campus. Uh, the president issued a gag order that I could not communicate with any students in any way. Uh, and I was banished from campus. I couldn't go to my office. I couldn't, uh, uh, I couldn't access it without uh, special permission from the, the dean. And, and that took you know, typically a week to, to arrange. So I was, uh, you know, automatically and summarily excommunicated uh, and cut off. Yeah, so the, take us through the chain of events. So you have, um, my understanding is the survey was developed um, in collaboration with students um, and was sent out via sort of, I guess you have access to some kind of campus. Uh, it, it was sent out to a, a pound students, pound faculty, uh, which basically sent a message to uh, all students and all faculty. Did you send it out or did one of your students? I, I sent it out. Actually, Qualtrics is a little complicated to use. And the, uh, a colleague who was the chair of the Institutional Review Board, which is another issue we can get into, uh, basically translated a Word document uh, into the Qualtrics format and then sent it to me and said, you know, you can go to Qualtrics and if you press this button, the survey becomes active. And I said, Thanks so much, Rob. I really appreciate that. I went out and bought him a special bottle of hot sauce for for what he had, uh, you know, the help he had been. Uh, that that went out on a Monday morning. And, and this was this the individual. So I know you you said at one point in in some of these documents you had conversations with somebody who suggested concern about the controversy that was likely to ensue. Um, not direct concerns about the ethics, like human ethics of the survey, but just concerns about this is really going to stir up the hornet's nest. So is, is this Rob? Is this who we're talking about? Right. right. And he's on the yes. IRB board? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But he if was you didn't go through the regular, you, you didn't submit it to the IRB board prior to launching it. Is that correct? No, I, I didn't. And, uh, you know, to do this kind of a classroom project, all in one semester, create an instrument, uh, deploy it, collect the data, uh, summarize it, analyze it, and present the results all in a semester 
is pretty difficult to do. The IRB meets about three times a year or four times a year. Getting it to them would have been difficult. Uh, in talking with him, there were several things about this survey. One, uh, human, uh, uh, was it human experimental research uh, has a couple of characteristics. The 45 CFR 46 outlines those and says it needs to be generalizable, uh, a generalizable issue. This was a study of uh, identity, beliefs, perceptions, and judgments of the Berea College community. In that way, it was not generalizable, it was localizable, or it was local. Uh, you know, if, if the dining hall sends out a survey of whether you like their sausage pizza or pepperoni pizza better, you don't generalize the results from one college and say, well, everybody likes pepperoni pizza better than uh, sausage pizza because of what the Berea College students think. You know, so it was local knowledge. Also, the Qualtrics response uh, allowed the subjects, the respondents, to remain entirely anonymous. There was no information collected about their identity. So those two things uh, were what made it something other than human subjects research, which is subject to IRB review and subject to the, uh, you know, to a lot of restraints and requirements. If you're looking at something that's local and you're not collecting or interacting with the respondents, that's the kind of study that, that we were doing. Uh, and we had, although he had expressed concerns about the controversy and didn't want it to be done, the chair of the Institutional Review Board uh, reviewed it very carefully and put it up on Qualtrics for us. My division chair went over it in great detail and also was concerned about the controversy. Uh, but in thousands of words of feedback, that I have from senior faculty members and administrators, the words ethical concern, uh, the word harm or injury, uh, or any of those don't appear at all in, in the word search. They expressed concern that uh, I, and concern that the students uh, would be uh, retaliated against. And I believed naively that the administration would protect us uh, because of academic freedom, uh, because this was a legitimate survey uh, that basically had a valid academic purpose, was related to the course that, uh, that I was teaching, followed on with projects that uh, I had done previously in this course. And, you know, the dean was very happy when we looked at the labor program and found some problems with the labor program using uh, survey methods uh, in the, the previous year. So I yeah. So I just wanted to to clarify on that because um, I don't know. From my understanding, like I do need to submit IRBs for, and I'm collecting anonymous data on Qualtrics um, from MTurk, which. A lot of people say it's not generalizable, but um, we're just going to leave that aside, though. 
but just like the fact that you have um, run previous surveys where you use the same method of like collecting data uh, from students in any of your previous surveys, have you gone through the IRB or is it always just um, not necessary? Because yeah, the, the previous year we had done uh, a survey of the labor pro or used data from the labor program uh, that was archival. They had gone through the IRB when they uh, when they collected those data rating the success of the labor program and uh, their outcomes individually so they they had used the IRB uh, before so I have taught undergrad stats a lot and students have collected data um, we never ask them to go through the IRB process for their their uh, projects in um, undergrad stats and our reasoning, and I don't know how well this actually aligns to policy, but our reasoning is, well, no, nobody's going to publish this work. Nobody's going to publish. And even with my, in my research, if I do a pilot study, often I will not go through the IRB process because it's like, well, this is, this is, we're not going to publish this data. This is just to um, help us develop the methods or something like that. And I, and I would say, I mean, at my time at American institutions, there's all sorts of surveys that get sent out, like, uh, department climate surveys, um, all, you know, th this kind of thing is sent out all the time. And I very much doubt that any, any of this stuff goes through the IRB process. So I, yeah, I, do you, it might've helped though. Do you regret not? Cause it probably would have made it through the IRB process with some changes. And that really could have, um, shielded you from some of the, uh, the the uh, uh, pushback. Um, yeah, it certainly would have. Mm. Um, after I was suspended and banished from campus, uh, the president asked Rob, as the chair of the IRB, to survey or to to mm. come together and have a meeting and consider the survey. They couldn't get together for three weeks to, you know, they couldn't work out their schedules to have a meeting. So he ended up calling them. He didn't give them any of the necessary information about uh, the survey or its academic foundation, its theory, my qualifications, my previous experience. He just asked if it was if the survey was appropriate or not. And unanimously, they came back and said, no, it wasn't. Uh, and he later wrote that if it would have been sent to the IRB, it would have been rejected, which was entirely the opposite of what he had told me before. And in fact, the message that he sent to the dean the day the survey went up, citing that it was local rather than generalizable and that it didn't collect any individually identifying information and that it it might be considered exempt because it was about an educational process and used a, a survey technique. Rob threw you under the bus there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sounds, sounds like he's covering his own his own uh, rear end. Uh, I extent there. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I feel like the IRB is there to protect uh human subjects from being harmed uh during research. And I can see um how the at least the the grievance in the Title IX case whose cases were sort of made public through this survey um could be harmed by it. Uh so 
I mean, if I was on the IRB uh, and, and uh, like looking through the survey, I, I don't know if I would have accepted it. Um, I do see the value in collecting the data, but I also see the concern of uh, f- just, yeah, creating harm to the, the women who were complaining in this case. Um, so do you, like, do you think that they were harmed uh, or that it's reasonable for them to be harmed, and, but that the sort of the data are more important and, and so it, it just like outweighs it? Or do you think that it's just not reasonable Wait, to be harmed by that? When you say harmed, what, what, ex- what exactly do you mean? Like upset? Yeah. Um, yeah, like, but okay, like so you, you're in this Title IX case, you have this grievance, and then later, somebody, somebody else in your department is asking, "Hey, do, like to other people, do do you think this is like protected by academic freedom?" Um, I, I like I, I think that's going to upset you for sure. But I, I, I guess I just want to be precise about what what is the harm being done by having this case discussed further in the department yeah i mean i think that like it's it's hard to draw a line and that it it sort of depends on how seriously you take the the initial complaint of creating a hostile working environment um but just the idea of like feeling like i think so the most charitable charitable take on this is that these uh women faculty members felt like it was a hostile working environment. Like they felt somewhat unsafe, maybe physically, maybe just um, psychologically, but like the feeling of sort of having a supervisor who's male and older and who's like telling inappropriate jokes and sort of making all these sexual innuendos and comments. And like, I can see maybe how it um is a is a sexual uh, it creates like a i feel like a lot of the the jokes were like just very off color um and like just creating a, a hostile environment and then uh making a complaint about that and then having that complaint sort of um made public and like having everyone commenting on whether they think it's it's legitimate or not i think wayne wayne is more exposed by this survey than anybody like it's his behaviors <laughs> that are being kind of like uh put in here i mean there was only one joke rachel which was the jewish princess joke. there was the jewish princess joke there was the chrissy hind thing and then there was the militant lesbianism thing which is more of a slur than it that's true princess. yeah i guess i was I mean, also i don't know if this was wayne's joke but there was one in the survey about a canoe um on water <laughs> oh yeah yeah. <laughs> but i i thought yeah maybe that was just thrown in there um mm. i don't know if, but yeah i just like i guess mm. it's hard to say right because and we don't know all the details like we don't know every single thing that he's ever said yeah um yeah. i just i i feel like in so many in, of these cases come down to just claims of harm that are never like this that are never asked to be justified. Like how how are you how were you harmed, right? Like because this is this is in theory Wayne's behaviors that they 
claimed created a hostile work environment. And now Wayne's behaviors are being put in this survey and other people are being asked, do you think this creates a hostile working environment? It's, it's more just like I'm offended because you're questioning whether I have a minority viewpoint on this, which they certainly did in the case of the Chrissy Hind interview, but they, they were kind of vindicated in the case of the militant lesbianism thing by this survey. So the idea that this survey, like in an obvious way harms them, I don't know. I don't like certainly given what Dave said about the environment where you have this faculty just not speaking to each other. Yeah. Like this survey was always going to be a match like on the, the, the powder keg. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, like I, I guess I'm just sick of people using this concept of harm in this like subjective, you know, yeah, there, there are a couple of actual Supreme Court cases that uh, are relevant to here. And one is Bunnell versus Lorenzo. Uh, and this was the uh, English teacher uh, in, in Macomb County, Michigan, uh, who used a lot of off-color language and, uh, you know, offensive sexualized speech and uh, and teaching English, and a uh, student filed a complaint against him. He actually copied the complaint, removed her name, and passed it out to his class. Uh, the Supreme Court said that didn't violate, you know, that didn't violate uh, her, and obviously it would make her, it would have made her uncomfortable. Uh, she happened not to be in class that day. He didn't know that she wasn't in class when he passed it out. But the Supreme Court said that he was entitled to do that. And and part of this, I think, is that when there's a grievance, uh, the public also has a right to know. And in the, I would argue in the case of Berea College, where 80% of the students are self-censoring uh, and intimidated by the potential of backlash, they're, they're undergoing harm at, at the present moment. Uh, there's another case, Supreme Court case that was uh, Falwell versus Hustler Magazine. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but basically Hustler did a, uh, a mock advertisement about uh, your first time and suggested that uh, Falwell's first sexual experience was with his mother in an outhouse, uh, which was incredibly offensive. Uh, and yet they said that uh, freedom of speech protected uh, Hustler and Larry Flint uh, and that really you only have the right to punish someone for speech if it causes physical harm. When the president suspended me. Uh, I asked repeatedly uh, because the faculty manual said uh, only in cases where uh, the individual is a danger to uh, persons or property uh, will the suspension be uh, extended, you know, beyond what, what's immediately necessary. After about, I don't know, a month or so, uh, the president wrote back and said that he considered me to be a danger to the well-being of certain students and faculty. Uh, I suspect that that won't pass legal muster, uh, you know, because being a danger to somebody's well-being 
is a really slippery slope because my well, I could argue that my well-being uh, is promoted by being in a situation where nobody disagrees with me. Nobody argues in favor of evolution because it upsets my religious belief. Nobody take nobody's critical. Nobody, and so uh, I think it, the issue of what is harm uh, is one that can become very problematic. On the other hand, uh, I think I needed to minimize harm. And I tried to do that in a number of ways. One, clearly not including names, not including dates, not including departments, changing the gender, changing the race at times, including examples that had happened 17 years earlier or 10 years earlier or five years earlier, including examples. And there's one, the Jordan Peterson case and the uh, from Canada that that's included in there uh, from different places. So my goal was that nobody would be able to identify uh, that these situations occurred unless they already knew about them. If they already knew about them, then it's not confidential information. I'm not telling them anything new. Uh, the, the information that we got from the survey, I think, is incredibly valuable and important and relevant and could be used to develop a training program, an education program. Uh, and, you know, as the instructions say, if, if a question or item you find upsetting or distressing, just skip to the next item. Uh, you know, you're, you're welcome to do that. We're not keeping keeping records of, of any of those those things. So I, I think we did try to minimize harm. Uh, anybody who made any suggestion among the, the six faculty members or the students who think this is too close, we need to change this, or why not? You know, I wish somebody would have said, uh, you know, why don't you use PTSD instead of PCCI, post-chemocognitive uh, impairment? Doesn't that do the same thing? The answer would be yes, and that would have been a great suggestion, and I would have done that, I think, right away. So, uh, but the the public, the community, has a right to know what are the kinds of things that can get you fired. What are the kinds of things that can, uh, you know, bring about punishment? Uh, and what are the processes, and how does it work? Because when people don't know. You know, and during the Inquisition, uh, they asked uh, people who were suspected of heresy to write down all the things that they had done wrong. Uh, and they never told you what the charges were against you. Uh, you know, one of the difficulties with a lack of transparency is you really get uh, terror, terroristic oppression, that anything you say or do might be considered later by somebody else to, to be a violation. Uh, the purpose of a conversation, an educational conversation, would separate those cases which really are uh, legitimate, severe, pervasive, uh, harmful expressions that really do create a hostile environment that most people see and recognize from those that are largely innocuous innocuous that, uh, you know, require, and after uh, 
Wayne had told the the inappropriate riddle after the uh, <laughs> class, the the meeting. I actually physically grabbed him by his his shirt, pulled him into my office, and closed the door and said. What the F are you doing? What are you thinking? Why in the world would you do that? You know, you need to apologize. I mean, I, so I was angry. physically assaulted bit. and you're swearing at him. Yeah. Poor Wayne. I mean, he, I think he has, he's the one with the claim against you, Dave. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, okay. So I, the, the one thing like the, students names were on the survey and these students ended up getting jostled you said so like maybe there's a case there that you put these students in harm's way i mean do you regret attaching their names i know you've said in these documents that it was discussed these students were expressed their you know support for having their names on it but it, it seems like why why should why did you have to put their names on it i don't know part of my philosophy and goal as a teacher as a commander, as a supervisor, as a provost, is to create opportunities for people to take pride in the work they do. Um, this was a good piece of, this was a, you know, an extraordinarily big project. The students had worked very hard on it. Uh, the potential advantage of having these students, having their name on something, uh, was something that I saw as a potential benefit. I was wrong. And uh, if I had it to do over again, knowing what I know now, I wouldn't have even brought it up. Uh, but I think giving students credit for the good work that they're doing when they're proud of it is really a, a good practice in general and something that uh, I've done regularly. In this case, it, it it turned out bad. And I'm, uh, you know, I deeply regret that. Mm. But it was, <laughs> you know, in, in, the, in the moment, the students were absolutely enthusiastic and supportive. And uh, this was what they wanted to do. And uh, it, it would have been odd for me to say, no, you can't have your name on it. You know, this is my project or, you know, this, this is too dangerous. You can't do it. I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think you bring out the best in people when you challenge them. One of the comments that I include in my syllabus regularly is that there's no more profound form of disrespect than uh, lowering standards and expectations. And students talk about that every, every class or, I mean, every at the beginning of every semester. And they really agree with that, that uh, if if they haven't really fully engaged and if they haven't done work that they're proud of, it doesn't matter what grade they got. It doesn't matter that the class really has not been a success for them. So there's a court case coming up and I mean, the, the legal issues are, are pretty complicated, I think, but I, hmm, I just wondering how to, how to, how to sort of wrap this up. I mean, do you, if we just sort of take a step back from this case and just sort of think about, I don't know, at the, at the human level, what's kind of, what's kind of happened here um, and what can we learn from it? And 
what what have you learned from it and and what advice can you can you give to other people or or what what do you think this shows about our institutions um in terms of the direction they're heading or or where where some things need to be thought about a bit more and addressed like i mean what would you say yeah what would you say like just the average academic onlooker can learn from this or should be should take from this um specific instance wow <laughs> um I think punishment is a problem in academic settings. I think it's almost always ill-advised and has does more collateral damage and makes things worse than uh, they are. I think without punishment, uh, if we can engage in good faith and have conversations together, uh, if we can look to evidence, use the tools that we have, uh, you know, tools of argument, tools of inquiry, uh, and and look at the data, look at the evidence. Um, use viewpoint diversity and take into account the student's viewpoint, the student perspective, uh, and the perspective of people uh, who who don't think like we do, who may not look like us, who may not have the same beliefs. Work to understand why they see things the way they do. And those conversations need to come uh, from uh using the tools to collect authentic, objective, uh, reliable, valid information. And, uh, you know, speculating about, uh, you know, what may or may not be offensive to somebody uh, is problematic, difficult, and uh, can lead to a lot of, uh, of complications that are unnecessary. Bottom line is uh, we need to not only educate but inspire the next generation. Uh, and we need to do that by challenging them, by asking tough questions, by listening to their answers uh, and helping them develop the skills and knowledge they need to, uh, you know, to be a success, to achieve success for themselves and for the groups and organizations that they're going to be a part of. You know, after all is said and done these last three years have been hell i mean it's been very painful uh mm -hmm. to see the misinformation and the defamatory and false statements about me uh by people that i thought were colleagues and i had trusted uh, has been deeply disappointing on the other hand if i take a step back and look at my last 50 years and uh, the Air Force and in higher education and the opportunities that I've had, uh, I really have been blessed. I've, uh, I've, I've led a good life and uh, I have many students I'm still in contact and correspondence with who've gone on to do extraordinary things. And uh, I think that's one of the special opportunities that we all have as uh, as educators to, to really make a difference in the lives of, of a whole lot of other uh, individuals that are coming along. And, uh, you know, we need to work to do that uh, and, and continually do it better. I just feel a bit um, just 
disencouraged by it all because it really seems to me that these committees and these investigations there are no rules like there are no principles it's it's they're there to provide a veneer of objectivity and sort of process to really basic human politics like i don't like this guy i don't think he's in my tribe i i want to get i want to get rid of him and it just seems now that it's just very very easy to use these levers if you have certain identity characteristics and are just willing to claim to be harmed and to be offended about certain things and i don't see it getting better and i don't even think if you win this court case it it'll get better like there's there's a number of people now sort of going to the legal system for help on these matters of like well i, I was treated unfairly i was fired unfairly there was this kid kiran badacharya who was expelled from medical school cuz he like questioned the concept of microaggressions and like he might win his court case but <laughs> he's not, he's not going to get readmitted to the program uh and i i don't know if it's a possibility that you'll win your job back i assume it's just sort of going to be a money settlement even if you win so i i think I, the court does have the leeway to re to to state me I would you would you want that i don't know mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, I'm 72. I'm tired. I've been fighting this battle and I'm going to continue to fight because I think it's the right thing to do. And uh, if I'm not doing it, I'm not sure who else would. Um, yeah. So- I mean, I think if there's if there's enough of these cases and they're sort of made public enough, then it would maybe act as a deterrent for universities to like actually have uh, due process and um you know, follow their own guidelines and and not just have these empty committees that aren't really doing anything. Um, I, so. I a freshman composition course called Questioning Authority, Science and Skepticism as uh, Antidotes for Oppression. And one of the films I show in that is the uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And the, the key point right in the middle of that uh, is when McMurphy tries to lift that uh, large watering station, marble watering station in the middle. And he's unsuccessful, obviously, and and has failed. But uh, once he says, you know, I tried, God damn it, at least I did that. That's kind of where I am, you know, and whether I'm successful or not. I, I know for myself, I've tried I've really tried to do the right thing. I'm not perfect and I've made mistakes and there are things that I could have done better, but I'm trying to do the right thing. And I think the students who know me and the colleagues who know me understand and appreciate that. And I think we need more people who are willing to do that. Um, And eventually we're going to win. It's kind of. uh, You just might be lobotomized first. hmm? You might be lobotomized. Yeah, could be, be, but Theodore Parker, the arc of justice is long, but it it tends to, or the arc of the universe is long, but it tends towards justice. I I think, uh, I think we're going to win. I mean, we see it, but we need to keep doing the right thing. Yeah. I I mean, I, I guess I don't know the whole story, but I really, I mean, I've read 
these emails from Thomas Sargent, a professor at Berea, who yeah, Tyler Sargent. Tyler Sargent, sorry, um, is the husband of one of the grievance, and I, it's it's just a lot of it's just clearly not reasonable and motivated by animus and stuff like that. So I, I don't know. I tend to think you have a case and I hope you, I hope you do prevail. Um, well, I don't know. I guess I hope justice is done. Um, there may so be some, some details that we're not aware of in this podcast. So, um, but we, yeah, we should have you back on uh, at, when this finally does reach whatever conclusion. It's, yeah, I, it I would enjoy reach. that. Yeah. It's, it really, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and I appreciate the work you did in reading the materials and getting ready for the conversation. So thank you. That's an interesting case, and I, I hope I hope people stay with us for the, what's going to be quite a long podcast because, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it is a really interesting case and um, connects to a lot that we talk about on this podcast. So really appreciate you coming on. Um, thanks so much, and, yeah, good luck. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And thank you both.